We welcome all of you, wherever you are in your journey of faith and life, uh, probably 10 to 15% of you, if uh, in any one of our services is usually investigating the faith, uh, another 75 uh, to 80% of you are uh, believing but have your own questions, so this is a great place to get your questions asked and answered, and this part of our service is where we look at a portion of scripture. We've been looking at the book of Galatians. We are now in the third chapter. So if you want to pull out your Bible, uh, you may do so. But I recommend if you have a bulletin that this morning, uh, because there's a bizarre uh, set of drawings, hieroglyphics in your bulletin that we need to explain that you use your bulletin for this particular Sunday. Uh, Naomi here to help us with the reading of God's word, John. Galatians chapter three, verses one to 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed, if it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I remember uh, one day taking a walk on the campus of Western University. I had uh, kind of wound up uh, my uh, work in the secular fields and gone into Christian ministry. I was assigned to the campus of Western to work with university students, help those who are skeptical, those who are seeking, and those who are Christians to understand the Christian faith more clearly. But I was tired and I was frustrated because of my own internal battles. I still had deep internal battles with pride, defensiveness, lust, and greed. And I remember praying to God saying this, when was the last time I didn't feel tempted by money, sex, or power. When was the last time I didn't criticize someone with quiet pride? There's got to be a better way. Life just feels like a grind. It's a constant battle against all these things, against, against, against. Where was, where's the joy that I once had as a new Christian? I became a Christian here. I remember being in law school about six or seven years earlier, and I'd become a Christian on this campus, right over there at the building. Why am I still feeling stuck? Where's the joy I had when I was back then? Why do I now feel a grinding sense of disappointment in my Christian life? 
I remember Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus, written in Revelation chapter 2, where he praised them for being mature and discerning and not growing weary in enduring and, and, and their adherence to good teaching. But, he says, I have this against you, your first love you have left. And I felt that was beginning to happen. And I don't think I'm the only one who's ever felt that way. I do believe that many people who are here are Christians who have something analogous in your own heart. You understand what it feels like. And if you're here and you're curious about the faith, you're worried that that will become you. That you'll become this dutiful, anxious, slightly disappointed person trying to ascend some spiritual staircase. And it's just going to get frustrating and it's going to become a grind. And you're going to ask, is it worth it? And Paul here has an answer to that question because Paul says there's a better way. The grace that first made you feel alive and free, the grace that you first accepted by faith is the grace that should guide and animate the whole of your Christian life, which is to be lived by faith. These people that Paul's dealing with in this book, this letter written to churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, Galatia is the region back then, they wanted to add something to the gospel of God's grace received by faith. They wanted to add Jewish laws from the Jewish moral law. They wanted to add circumcision. They wanted to add Jewish dietary laws. They might have wanted to add the whole thing. We don't think so, but they wanted to add a lot for sure. We're not sure why they wanted to add a lot, but we do know this. Paul is saying that you are wrong when you add anything to the gospel of God's grace, wholly provided by Jesus and received in you by your own faith. You have to realize, these people are saying there are two tiers of Christians. Ones who just believe by faith and ones who add to that belief some kind of adherence to the Jewish law. And Paul says there are no two tiers of Christianity. There are no two tiers of spirituality. There's no second class and first class Christians. There is only one way to live the Christian life. That way is the way of faith, trusting in the grace of God, leaning on the grace of God, going deeper into the grace of God, maturing in your understanding of the grace and how it applies to you. And here he gets to the heart of his argument for the rest of the letter and explains why it is foolish, indeed spiritually fatal, to add anything to the gospel requirement, which is this, simply believe in Jesus and all of the blessings that God has for you are yours. Paul says three things in this passage. Firstly, the way you entered the faith is the way you progress in the faith. Secondly, it was always this way. Thirdly, it must always be this way. Firstly, the way you got into the faith is the way you progress in the faith. First paragraph. Paul starts this first paragraph in a, in a tone of tender anguish. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul is saying that you are so deceived 
by these false teachers and they're adding something to the gospel that it's almost as if you've fallen under an evil spell. That's how dangerous this is. Then he says, let me ask you only this. No, then he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is saying, look, we explained the gospel. We told you about Jesus and all that he's done for you in his life and his death and resurrection, that he lived a perfect life for you, that he died a sacrificial death for you, that he paid for all. We told you all of that, that all of your sins are paid for. We told it to you so vividly, so clearly, and so consistently. It's as if he was right there publicly reenacting his crucifixion for you. You didn't miss it. You knew exactly what his death meant. And you believed in it. And then Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions meant to provoke them to see the foolishness, the irrationality, the illogic of what they are now tempted to believe. His question is, how did you receive the Spirit of God back then? Did you receive it by faith or by doing something, the works of the Mosaic law? Did you receive the Spirit of God simply by believing and accepting the gift or doing something to deserve it? Obvious answer, by faith. Then a second, more pointed question comes right up. Having received the Spirit of God and the forgiveness of sins simply by faith, having gotten all of that, are you now really trying to be perfected by, the word here is translated the flesh. But other scholars, I think rightly understanding that the literal word, the flesh here, is meant in a particular way, say, are you being perfected by human effort? That's really what Paul is saying. Because that is what these false teachers, what scholars call Judaizers, because they want to make us more Jewish, that is what these false teachers are praying, are, are um, teaching, that you must be perfected by these works of the Jewish law. Then Paul brings the hammer down. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The question answers itself. Paul says, remember how you became a Christian and got the Spirit by believing, by faith alone, because God in his grace had done it all. It was done. It was enough. You didn't have to do anything because it was done. You simply trusted that God had already provided the way for you to be his child through Jesus. He had given you the gift. It was purchased. It was done. All you had to do was receive it. God sent a spirit into you to prove that it was done, and all you had to do was receive it. Then he did miracles around them. Other people became Christians. People got healed. And what did they do to get all this? They simply believed. And so Paul's saying, now that you're more, quote, unquote, mature, you think that planning to progress in your spiritual life is to begin to yourself ascend a spiritual staircase. You're missing the point. You mature not by ascending a spiritual staircase of your own effort, but by descending into the depths of the pool of the living water of God's gracious gift to you in Jesus. Now, Look at these bizarre uh, drawings on your bulletin. Okay, you're, you're going to look at it. Someone told me earlier it looks like an L with a megaphone. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's not what it's meant. Some of you who've been around here long enough probably know what these two are. Let's just look at the one on the left. What is that? Social science people, you think it's an L. STEM people, this is a 
Graph, absolutely. Which one's the x-axis, which one's the y-axis? Help me out here. Come on, you gotta know that business people help out, the STEM people are momentarily having brain cramps, right? X-axis is the horizontal one on the bottom, right? Business people help everybody out. What does that usually measure in your world? Time. What does the vertical axis, the y-axis usually measure? Progress in whatever you're measuring, right? Sales, profits, volunteers, whatever it is, right? Progress of some kind, okay? Now here's what I want you to think about. Look at this graph and ask yourself, when I ask you how are you doing spiritually, doesn't a graph like this come into your brain? Because I have talked to a lot of you and I draw this graph on the whiteboard in my office. And you look at the graph and I say, Tell me what your spiritual life should look like. And they go, obedience at the bottom, time at the, uh, time at the top, vertical, <laughs> sorry, time at the bottom, obedience, the top one, or maturity or sanctification or whatever technical word you want to talk about growth in your Christian life, progress. So, and they want to see it going up over time. Yeah? Nice 45 degree angle, that's perfect. I said, great, that's a great, that's what it should look like, good. Now what's it actually look like? And then they do something like this, you know, <laughs> right? Canada's Wonderland, one of the rides, just a roller coaster, that's their actual spiritual life. And so I look at them and I go, so this is what it's supposed to be, and so you're filling in the line on that graph, and I said, how does that make you feel? And these are the words I, well, this is what I usually get. I, I usually get the look down. Huh. I feel disappointed. I feel discouraged. I feel frustrated. You feel like I felt on the campus of Western University. This is a grind. And I say, how do you feel when your own self-assessment is low and you should be up here and there's a big gap? They go, it's terrible. Shouldn't be there. I said, okay, tell me how this graph and your lines makes you feel generally. Discouraged, dutiful, anxious, guilty. I said, is this typical of how you generally feel about yourself in your spiritual life? Yes. 99% 99% of the time. I mean, I've done this with like 40 of you in the past year. This is a small but pretty clear sample size. This is what we do. What's wrong with the graph? What's wrong with the graph? The graph is what's wrong with the graph. Because what's the graph, what's the graph measuring? Me. You. Yeah, all the guys that did this are guys. Me, I know this. It's you. You're measuring your progress. You're stuck on you. You're focused on you. And when you're doing well, you're kind of proud and happy. And when you're doing low, you're discouraged and anxious. And you mostly feel low because we're Torontonians and we always have high standards, right? So we're always below the bar of what we expect. So we sit around and our spiritual life is quiet disappointment with ourselves and thinking God doesn't, he's even more disappointed. So how... Do you really want to share this kind of Christian life with skeptics and people who are friends? Is is this what it's all about? Now look at the other diagram. This diagram has two lines moving away from each other. The top line moving higher is meant to be your view of God. This is your subjective view over time. When you first become a Christian, God's pretty high, you're pretty low, and there's a great gap between the two of you. But there's a cross where Jesus comes down and bridges that gap and dies for you. And you feel at the beginning of your Christian life, what? Joyful, 
happy, free. You love God and you're excited about him. But then what happens? As you become a Christian longer, your view of God just goes up. You see how beautiful he is, how holy he is, how lovely he is. And also the Holy Spirit works in you and begins to show you how deeply selfish you are, how deeply self-absorbed you actually are, how even your best efforts you hope somebody notices. And you begin to realize, oh, at the deep levels of my inner motivation, I'm pretty self-absorbed. And your view of your own sinfulness begins to make you feel lower about yourself. And so suddenly, three or four years down the road, look what happens. You become a Christian for four years and you thought, oh, you know what, in four years, I'm going to be closer to God than I ever expected to be. And four years later, you're like, how come the distance has doubled? And how do you feel? Discouraged, dejected, anxious, guilty. Just like the, just like the graph, just left to it. So, so what's so good about it? Here's what's so good about the diagram on the right. You know what you do at that point? You realize that grace is for Christians too and that every single one of the things that you're disappointed about right now Christ died for, Christ knew about, and Christ's grace covers because grace is for Christians too. And you keep letting the cross get bigger as they go farther away. You can choose. You can make it let you feel devastated or you can allow God's grace to crash in on you as you realize I'm way more sinful than I ever thought I was. But God's grace is bigger than I ever imagined it could be. Now let me, let me ask you, the graph or the diagram with the cross getting bigger in it. Which one of these do you think would be better for you to embrace overall for your own personal joy? Let me show you this again. This is about you. This one on the right is about God and the greatness of his grace. Which one do you think honors God more? It honors God more It frees you more, and it represents the New Testament teaching of the gospel better. Now, both of these are very simplistic understandings. I get that. But I want you to see, we naturally make a graph and chart our progress because we want to know how we are doing. But God wants you to get rid of the graph and grow the cross so that you go deeper and deeper as you learn about your own sinfulness and your own mistakes and the depth of your own selfishness, that you will grow in your understanding of just how big God's grace is. Faith was the way into the Christian life. It is the way forward for the Christian life. Faith is enough. The gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life, as Tim Keller once said. Now, you may, you may push back. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What about works? works? Works are important. Works are necessary. Yeah, actually, as we're going to learn later in this letter, there's a kind of truth to that. Works really are necessary, okay? But faith plus works doesn't equal salvation. Faith equals justification plus works as a response by the Holy Spirit coming into you and the love pouring out of you. And what kind of works do you think God feels most delighted with? I'm a father. When my daughter begrudgingly does what I ask her to do consistently with a begrudging attitude, 
Do you think I enjoy her listening to me? But when my daughter freely, joyfully, because she loves me, does it before I ask her, which one of these, it's the same activity, which one of these delights my father's fatherly heart more? Which kind of works do you think actually delights God's heart more? Works that come out of a heart of gratitude, works that come out of a heart thrilled with the love of God, amazed that God loves you. These are the kinds of works that God is hoping to get from you. Works out of one who has felt and experienced God's love. The way in is the way forward. The way in is the way deeper into the depths of the waters of God's grace, not ascending a tiring spiritual staircase to God. Second point, faith is not only the way forward, it always was. In the second paragraph, he talks about Abraham. Matter of fact, in verse six, he picks it up and says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis. And then he explains it. Know then, those of faith are the ones who are sons of Abraham. In other words, it was Abraham believing God which attracted God's love, blessings, him being God's child. It wasn't anything else. And then he says these powerful words. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. That's quoting Genesis chapter 22. Now, we need to understand something here about the Jewish faith. At the time Paul was writing, these, the Jewish faith generally taught that you needed to follow God's law to keep experiencing his blessings and stay in covenant with him. They looked back in Jewish history, looked back on the, and said, our forefathers, starting with Moses, were given the law, and the law was our covenant with him. Therefore, we had to obey that law to stay in covenant with him. And Paul says something startling. He says, oh, you go back to Moses? No, Moses isn't the foundation of Israel. Let me go back to the founder, Abraham, and let me show you that you got history wrong. It's not obedience to the law that keeps you in covenant with God. It's grace received by faith. Look at the life of Abraham. You see, Abraham was given the promises of God And part of that promise was that in your offspring, all the nations of the earth are blessed. Genesis 22, 18. And that other verse, all the nations in you shall all the nations be blessed. I.e., coming from you, somehow the whole world's going to be blessed. Well, coming from Abraham, his offspring is Jesus Christ. 1,700 years after Abraham was given this promise, about 1,700 years, a man named Jesus was born. And Jesus precisely fulfilled the several promises to Abraham that in him or through him by his one offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. Point being, Abraham by faith received the incredible promise of the gospel of Jesus coming. Now I want you to just think about this. We're going to stop for one moment here and I want to address those of us who are curious about the Christian faith. Because oftentimes, those of us who are curious about the Christian faith have trouble intellectually believing that this isn't something fairly absurd and primitive. But I want to ask you, those of us who are curious, and I can ask all of us, two weeks ago, 
Who would have been able to adequately predict the Canadian election outcome? Just go back two weeks. Do you remember the polls two weeks ago? Some of us don't care. Okay, uh, I'll fill you in. Okay, two weeks ago, the Bloc Québécois was rising in Quebec. Liberal support was falling. Two weeks ago, the NDP was surging. So the week before the election, there were all kinds of speculation. Uh, NDP support could split the progressive vote. They could, they could take a bunch of seats from the liberals. We could see a strong conservative minority sneaking in based on these projections. Sheer now is ahead in the popular vote, which turned out to be true. That combined with the surge of NDP support and Bloc Québécois support, siphoning off liberal support, we have a very good chance of seeing a very, very close, too close to call election. What happened? Wasn't that close? They were all wrong. All the best pollsters and all the best pundits in Canada with all the best tracking information on a week's notice missed how big the liberal minority was going to be, or most of them did. Some of them got it fairly right. Here's the point. With all that information, on this one event coming a week later, we couldn't get the prediction right. And yet the Bible, over 18, 1900 years of writing, has 40, 50, 60 predictions about Jesus, written from, from the 1700s all the way up to, to the time of Christ, all, well, all the way up to 300 years before the time of Christ, 40 or 50 predictions that become precisely true in his person. You tell me what the mathematical probability of that is. We don't just follow some ancient book with, filled with errors. We follow a book that has an incredible internal unity and an unexplainable prophetic power to predict the truth. But now let's get back to the point to Christian original readers that Paul was pointing pointing to. What Paul is saying is, okay, all of you, go back to the, fourth, the founding of God having covenant with the Israelite people. What was that based on? Grace received by faith, which is all that Abraham needed to inherit all of the blessings. And grace received by faith is all you need to inherit all of the blessings of the Christian faith, to have the Spirit come into you, to have miracles working around you, to have you completely changed from the inside out. That is the point that he's making with Abraham. Now finally, ah, sorry, I just wanna explain something to us because there's, there's something I just wanna to explain to a bunch of us who are a little bit confused about the nature of the Old Testament law and how it works with the New Testament. Many of us in this room, and this is mostly for Christians, we think that the Old Testament law was a system of obedience that we had to earn, and then God would give us his pleasure. And when that failed, God sent Jesus as kind of a plan B. Paul has already proven that that's not true, that even at the beginning with Abraham, it's not true. What Paul doesn't say here, but what is actually clear is that even when Moses was given the law, that wasn't true because when Moses was given the law in Exodus chapter 20, here is the preamble. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, therefore, law one, commandment one, I am the Lord thy God, right? So what's he saying? I'm the Lord your God who out of grace delivered you out of slavery to Egypt. I come to you unconditionally in grace with that foundation. Now respond. 
by obeying my Ten Commandments. And when you examine the law in the Old Testament, you will find there were at least three aspects to, to the law given as one unity. First of all, it had a function of reducing violence and promoting justice and restraining evil, what theologians call the civic use of the law. There were all these rules about how to treat foreigners and sojourners and how to make just weights and and properly administer justice in the society. That was the first function of the law in the Old Testament. Second function, it was to show us our own corruption and sinfulness. People think, oh, it, it was a staircase that you were to ascend. It was a treadmill. You're supposed to perform it. No. Never meant that way. Not even given to Moses. The moral aspect of the law was too high. God was too holy. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Have you ever done that ever? None of us have. Too high. It was meant to make you feel your spiritual inadequacy and your need for grace. And then in case you didn't get it, it, you had all these ceremonial laws. Kill this animal as atonement for your sin. Have this animal be sacrificed as atonement for your sin. The law was always meant to reveal your need for grace. The whole system of the law was meant to say you can't live according to the standards of God. Thirdly, it was a guide to those who'd been saved by grace in this is how God wants you to love him back. All those three to restrain evil, to tutor us, to see our need for grace, and to guide us in how to respond to God's grace by loving him. Those were the three when the law was originally given. Those are still the three for the Christian who has received Jesus. There has only been one way to approach God ever. From the beginning of time, God has had one way, by grace, through faith in him and his grace as he reveals that grace to us. In the Old Testament, it was revealed in the way the law forced you to examine yourself and rely on sacrifices for grace. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and says, I am the final offering of grace because you can't do it. And that is our third point, first point. The way that you received and entered the Christian life by faith is the way you go forward. Second point, it was always this way even back in the days of Abraham. Third point, it must always be this way because the law's purpose was to point to Christ who is the center of everything. Look at verse 10, our third paragraph. For all who rely on works of the law, now he gets general. Not talking, about, not talking about Jewish history here. He's talking about a general spiritual principle of architecture for the universe that we live in. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul's saying, here's the spiritual architecture. You want to try to obey some of God's laws and you want to merit you want to merit his approval? You've got to do all of them. James makes the same point. You can't take some of the laws and say, I'm going to do those, and that's going to make me in better standing. The minute you begin to make your walk with God dependent on your behavior, God says, fine, here's the whole list of the law. Now go and love me 
perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly and let me know how that goes for you. Here's Paul's central argument. It's the argument of this book. It's the central argument of the New Testament. If you rely upon works of the law on your own effort, you are under a curse. The immutable law of spirituality is this. We cannot please God in our own efforts. We cannot obey his law. We're too selfish. We're too sinful. We're constantly falling short. And therefore, his judgment justly falls upon us and we're under a curse. God is holy. We're sinful. Remember the diagram? There's a gulf. There's a gap. God cannot love or support our moral wrong. Even as we cry out in public for justice, here's what we do quietly in our inner selves. We crave power. Michel Foucault may have said it best. One of the fathers of deconstruction and postmodernism said, the strategic adversary is fascism. Most of us don't know what he means by fascism, but he explains it. The fascism in us all, in our heads, in our everyday behavior, the fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. You know what he's saying? We publicly talk about social justice, we hate exploitation, we hate oppression, and we privately crave power so we can exploit and oppress. No one, no one is justified. No one meets God's standards. No one passes his exam. No one is declared righteous. Not the most progressive person, not the most moral person, not the happiest, not the most patient person we've ever met because the law forces you into God's standards and they are too high. That's why... the. Paul can say, there's none righteous, there's none who seeks for God. Then, if that is true, how can the curse on us be lifted? Paul tells us, here's the architecture of the universe. We're all under a curse. But Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the curse. There's only one way to God. You see, no other religion, no other spiritual pathway, no other moral framework gets us out from under the curse. We are trapped like slaves. We are either under God's law and fail or under God's grace through Jesus and our failure is put upon him. And put on him he did. It says Jesus redeemed us. That's the language of the slave market where someone comes and pays the sufficient price to free you. And that's what God did for you. He alone, he alone was the one human who actually sat under the works of the law and obeyed them perfectly. He did not attract God's judgment. He attracted God's pleasure. And then he climbed on a cross And he said, I will now take the judgment of others upon myself and I will be the guilty sacrifice to pay. I will substitute my innocence for their guilt and I will take the curse aimed at them. And he paid the penalty of that curse. He took the judgment and one of his last words on the cross was, it is finished. He took all of God's judgment of all of the sins everyone who believed by faith such that the sins you once had the sins you do have and the sins you will have are all covered by his substitution everything you need 
Everything you will need has been done. You need to do nothing more. Now, if you're here and you are curious about the Christian faith, I want you to hear this. Christ became a curse for human beings. He didn't come to give you a moral template for how to lead a good life. He wasn't just a good teacher. He came to take your moral wrong, which puts you under a curse, and he came to bear it for you. And he opens up his hand and he offers you perfect forgiveness, God's adopting love. He says, I've paid for you, now just accept the gift. And he offers you right now, where you are, the opportunity to just ask him to come in, to be your God, and to take the curse away. That is the offer of the gospel. And I urge you to accept that offer. There's no other way. He met God's standard and he alone. You are either going to sit under God's standard and become cursed for it, or you are going to let Christ be a curse for you. Believe in Jesus. Ask him to come into your life, and he will, and he will forgive you. And if you're a Christian, what I want you to say is this. Firstly, God loves you as much today as he ever did, despite your manifold failures with him. I get it. I feel that way. It's hard to believe. It really is. But I've got to have faith. Faith sometimes means denying what my emotions are screaming at me. Relax. God loves you as much as he did when he first forgave you. But secondly, reflect. Lose the graph. The graph is destroying your joy, killing your love, increasing your anxiety, and threatening to make Christianity a dull, miserable, boring affair. It's not meant to be. Lose the graph. Grow the cross. Understand how deep God's grace is and walk and meditate upon that. Paul Martin Luther said, I have to beat the gospel into my head every morning. I know that feeling. I'm a self-condemning, self-disappointed guy with ridiculous, what I think are ridiculously high standards until I think of God's, which are infinite. And then I stop having those standards and I realize I need his grace. My default position is to try and earn God's. I think yours are too. Lose the graph. Grow the cross. Dive deeper into the grace of God. Several years after I had been on campus, I went back to London, actually just about a year and a half ago, for the funeral of one of the people who had mentored me back in those days when I was grinding my way through that miserable period. And while I was back in London, I reflected on this man who had mentored me when I was first in ministry, and then I reflected on those days of grinding and tiredness and fatigue. And I reflected on the fact that I am really still quite proud. I was actually challenged about someone seeing some arrogance in me lately, and I was like, you know what, I think that person's right. And I began to catalog all the ways this week my pride and my arrogance had, had still residence in me. And I thought, you know, that's, my goodness, that was 1990 <laughs> that I, <laughs> 1992, I think, that I, no, 1990 that I was there on campus. That's, you know, that's almost 30 years ago. I still fight 
my arrogance. I still fight my anger after all these years. But I'm not grinding on it in the same way. I feel God's love. I feel his forgiveness. I know he delights in me. And so even though I'm kind of sad that I'm still fighting these fights, I know I am free from the self-condemnation and the grind and the anxiety because I'm not living by the graph. I've grown the cross, and I know he delights in me. I mean, look, I'm the biggest jerk in the room, and you guys are listening to me. How stupid is that? (laughs) It really is. It's God's grace. You know why I'm up here? Because God has a sense of humor that the biggest, most arrogant, most sinful turkey in the whole of Grace Toronto is actually the one who gets to speak the most because God wants to say, it's not about you and what you do. It's about what I've done and my grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. May the majesty and the reality of your grace not only lead us into the Christian life, but lead us along the Christian life. And I pray that we would become those who just enjoy your grace more deeply. Oh, yes, we do want to do good works, but we want to do them as a response to the Spirit in us that was given to us by grace. We want to do it as a response to the love you've already poured out upon us. We want to do it as beloved children seeking to give back to our Father some of what he's given to us, not begrudging um, tenants paying rent so we can stay in the building. We thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I have... um, Well, I have uh, 17 questions. Uh, Come to me afterwards. We'll get some of these done. I'll I'll, I'll start with a couple of these uh, just before I stop. Uh, Doesn't this scripture support people who say Christianity has no law? No. Great question. Christianity does have the law of God. Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in other weeks. He said, I came to fulfill it. And if you look at the way the New Testament writers write, they talk about the law in a variety of ways. They don't say that the, the law, that the Ten Commandments are over. They apply them through Christ in a new way, that it should be on your heart. Christ taught, and we're going to talk about this later on this year, Christ taught, you know, it says don't murder, but if you're angry with your brother, you're actually committing the sin that was meant in the Ten Commandments. So Christianity does have the law. As a matter of fact, Howard McPhee would say the moral law, the Ten Commandments, have been intensified, and if you read the Sermon on the Mount, a good case can be made, I think, that he's intensified those laws. It's no longer don't murder or don't lust, or don't covet, it's even more deeply. If you're, if, if, if you're coveting something, if you're lusting after somebody, uh, you're, you're sinning in, in, in just even thought and word and deed. So uh, I think the law is still there, but Christ has changed it somewhat, and we need to figure it out. Now, I once heard a pastor say, God doesn't bless you when you're backsliding. That has always felt out of character for me, but is there some truth to it, or is it just graph projecting? Okay, so here's the other side of it. If you really want to experience God's joy, when you're obeying God, you do existentially experience his pleasure more than when you're running from him. There's no doubt about that. That is actually true. God's still your father. God still has the same love for you. 
But you, by your own guilt and by your own resistance to God, you are blocking his love and his grace and his joy from pouring into your heart. But when you, when you do obey God, when you do the things that God wants you to do, your receptacles are open and his, his love just pours into you. There's no permafrost stopping it from getting in. The permafrost is the permafrost of your soul. Does God's love for you change? No, but your experience of his pleasure does change based on how much you are enjoying God and obeying him. Very good. Uh, oh, man, massive questions. Uh, many Reformed commentators insist that Paul's addressing here exclusively justification regarding the foolishness of the Galatians. On what exegetical ground do you infer Paul's exhortation as it relates to sanctification in this passage? Okay, highly technical word. Okay, uh, joy of seeing the cross as opposed to spiritual performance review. When Paul says, why are you trying to be perfected by human effort? Every reasonable scholar that I've read infers that comment to mean sanctification. So you say that most scholars don't say that. I'm not sure which scholars, whoever asked this question, is talking about. Almost every scholar I know thinks that Paul has begun to talk about the whole of the Christian life starting in chapter 3, which would be including this word sanctification. So maybe you can come up to me and give me the scholars you're looking at because the ones I'm looking at all agree that Paul is saying you started this way, but you're trying to continue this way. That continuing is what Christians call sanctification. So uh, last question I'll do. Differences between Old Testament and New Testament Christians is... Is it just that we know of Jesus and have the Holy Spirit? What are the implications that God's people did not have the Spirit? Um, man, that question's about a three-hour answer. Um, so David says, where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? In Psalm 139, David's an Old Testament believer in God. Doesn't know Jesus' name, but is clearly considered a person. Now, First thing I need to say, if you're an Old Testament believer, your faith in God as you know him, Yahweh, as he's shown himself to you and and trusting in his grace through the sacrificial system, knowing that you need it, does enough to justify you because God's going to look forward in history and he's going to take Jesus' death and he's going to apply it to the belief they had. Jesus' death combined with their belief will save them. That's how it works. God looks backward in time from the cross because God's outside of time, so time isn't like something he's living in. God enters time, but he's outside of it. And so God will do it backwards, but he does it forward too to me. He goes forward from the cross and takes all my sins and takes it away as well. That's how it works. So the, the, the real question is, how are they different? The Holy Spirit has been poured out in the New Testament, seems to be poured out in, in more powerful ways, and yet David seemed to pretty clearly say, I have your spirit as an Old Testament believer. So, great question. There are thousands of books written on that exact question, and I have to honestly say, I don't exactly know. It makes consistent theological system sense for me to say, the Old Testament believer had the spirit in them in much the same way. And yet there seems to be a greater power in, in, in the work of the Spirit in the New Testament that's undeniable. And so there are certainly in the narrative of the Old Testament, the Spirit comes powerfully upon prophets and priests and people like Daniel at times to give them dreams, to make them do miracles like Elijah and Elisha for a period of time and then seems to stop working that powerfully in them. That's sort of like Spirit coming down to do things through them. 
But the New Testament talks about the Spirit indwelling you forever. And, and some people think that's the difference. I'm not convinced. In other words, that's a long way of saying, great question, I don't know. <laughs> it's above my pay grade. PhDs don't know, though. So it's above all our pay grades. We're not quite sure. Great question. We need to stop. You can come here and ask more questions because it's time to go to the Lord's table and rehearse this idea that it was done for us because Jesus on the night he was betrayed broke bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. By which he meant we were to eat bread in memory of his body, the bread of life being broken for us at the cross. A little while later, just to make that point more clear, he uh, picked up a cup of wine and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in memory of me. By which he meant his body would be broken and his blood would be poured out to pay the price of being a curse for you and for me. And he asked us to regularly eat and drink of it that we might remember that it was done fully and finally. And all we need to do is have faith. And so this table, which we are now going to celebrate, is a table for all baptized, believing Christians who have trusted in Jesus. This is your table. It's not our church's table. It's his table. Therefore, it's yours. We are going to pass the elements along. The bread is all gluten-free. The wine will be darker than the grape juice. Take it and um, eat and drink at your own uh, timing as you feel led to do. If you're not yet a baptized believer, if you still are outside the Christian faith but interested in it, we ask you just to pass it by. I'm going to pray, and then the table will be open. Lord, I pray that you will take the real objective work of Jesus on the cross. And now by your spirit, make it real food for our souls that are thirsty and hungry for grace. For we know we have failed you. By faith, we trust that despite our inadequacies, Jesus's death on the cross is enough. We thank you for the spirit in us that is proof that all we needed to do is accept the gift. Now let it be proof that we continue in the faith the way we started. Let joy and freedom and gratitude be our constant companions as we grow the cross in our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Table is open. Enjoy.